Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. First of all, obviously, I would definitely like to thank Rabbi Shmuley and VBM for bringing me here. Yeah, they definitely deserve applause with um, this very busy schedule that they've created and uh, allowing me to, to tell my stories. But more so, I'd like to thank you all for coming tonight because as a travel photographer, what I really do is that I tell stories. And whenever I have an audience that's willing to listen to my stories, it gives me great pleasure. So thank you for being here, and let me take you on a journey. This is going to be a pretty long journey. 684 miles, crossing an entire country. And it's a journey of deep change, both in the physical sense, but much more in the spiritual sense. And it's a journey through a tough and rugged, oops, sorry, that one skipped, through a tough and rugged land. Sometimes it could be a little unforgiving. And for the next hour and little bit, I want to walk with you the Israel National Trail. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Israel actually has one of the best trail marking systems in the world. Miles upon miles of trails are marked. Usually, they're marked with a white line, a colorful line, and another white line whereas the Israel National Trail is marked differently. White, blue, and orange, symboling where it goes to and where it goes from. So what would be a landscape feature that's white? White. Yeah, but think about landscape. What in the landscape could be white? So snow, that's right. So we only have one, one, oh, that's right. Well, all right, not, not in Arizona, think in Israel. So we only have one mountain that is annually snowy, Mount Hermon, up north. That's where the trail begins. And then blue would obviously be the, right, the water. It goes through the Mediterranean and ends all the way down south in the Negev with its colorful orange sands. So this is where we go to, north to south. Now, before we begin, I'd like to ask you all to indulge me for three seconds and close your eyes. And as you do, think of the most picturesque, unique picture of a crater that you can imagine. Open your eyes, please. This picture is from the northern rim of the Ramon Crater. And to me, it really represents my journey on this trail. Because as you can see, there are two roads, to the right and to the left, where you could stray if you don't pay attention. But the general direction I was headed, the road south, is wide open. 
rocky, rugged, but wide open to whoever wants to walk it. Above, stormy skies, the challenges, the difficulties along the way, but the best thing is, there's a light at the end. So before we actually start walking, I'd like to introduce myself a little better. As you were told, I'm Udi Gorin, a travel photographer, Israeli, born and raised. And like many other Israelis, upon finishing my military service, I took a gap year when traveling abroad. I really, really liked it. So the gap year turned into six years of traveling abroad. And during that time, what I realized is that not only do I enjoy traveling, meaning going to new places, meeting new people, I really enjoy the documentation part of it. So capturing stories and taking them back with me to share with others. So the natural next step for me was to go to school in the Brooks Institute of Photography, not very far from here in Santa Barbara, California. And upon finishing, upon graduation, I had the privilege to intern with National Geographic in Washington, DC, and then came back to Israel <clears throat> to implement my newly acquired skills back home. Now, throughout this period of traveling and then studying, I've always had it in mind that I wanted to travel the Israel National Trail, and I never really made it happen. I did try twice. I attempted both times in 2007. I've set out, and about a week into the walk, I quit both times. Had you asked me back then, I would tell you that this happened and that happened and circumstances were such, but today I can tell you that I just wasn't ready yet. And I am a firm believer in that things happen in their due time. In my due time, was the winter of 2014. Now, I'm sure you all remember in the summer of 2014, a war broke out between Israel and Gaza. At the time, I've just gotten back from the US, not that long before that, and I moved to Tel Aviv, started my own business, and as a new business, I started taking any job that came my way so I can really get the ball rolling and, and start making a living. But because I took any job that came my way, I became, I became very, very frustrated because I wanted to be in Israel and tell tremendous stories and go out and meet amazing people and do all these things that I was trained for. And I, find my, I found myself doing things that I really didn't care for. So, I became very frustrated professionally. And then on top of that, the war breaks out. And I sit at home in Tel Aviv, and then alarms in the middle of the night, and missiles overhead, and running down to bomb shelters. And I sit at home, and I watch TV, and I read the news, and I see how the country is slowly going into this next round of violence, which seemed inevitable, inevitable at the time. And at that point, I felt it was too much for me to deal with both things. I came back and had such great plans for what I wanted to do. I knew the potential of the stories that I could tell, but then I wasn't doing it. And then on top of it, the war breaks out. And as a traveler, my initial instinct was to just pack a bag and go. Too much for me to handle. But I decided to do the opposite. I decided to pack a bag and stay. 
And I want to read to you what, what I've written to media outlets and magazines once I've decided that this was what I wanted to do, and this might shed some light on my decision. This journey is my way of dealing with the recent conflict in Gaza. Reactions from politicians, the Israeli public, and even acquaintances made me feel hopeless and that I no longer belonged. After much contemplation, I had decided to do the opposite of my immediate reaction go out to find, walk through, and experience the land outside of the headlines and the friction. I've set out to reconnect with the land. Now, this graph is going to follow us throughout the journey. So here you can see how much I've walked, and here you can see how connected I feel to where I am. And at this point, I'm still at home, feeling very disconnected, wanting to get away and that's where I am when I set out. Now, I cannot tell this story without introducing Rotem to you. Rotem is a friend of a friend. She heard I was going. We didn't know each other very well. But once she heard I was going, she decided that she wants to join, and she came along. And today, in retrospect, I can tell you that this was probably the best thing that had happened to me before leaving for the trail. Because not only was she a logistical partner, meaning when I ran off to shoot sunsets, she could pitch a tent and start cooking, and I'll, I'll do the dishes and, and, um, and set everything else up. But she was also a partner in the very literal sense, meaning every meeting that we had, any encounter, any hardship, anything, any decision that we had to make, we had each other to consult with and actually walk through this journey hand in hand, so to speak. So after all this, what is the Israel National Trail? So as now you know, it's a long distance trail that begins in northern Israel, zigzags throughout the country, and ends all the way down south. It was actually inspired by a trail you might have heard about, the Appalachian Trail. In the 80s, an Israeli journalist and nature guy came to the US, heard about the Appalachian Trail, and thought it was an amazing idea, and we have to have one. It took about 10 years until we planned it, and in 95, it was inaugurated, and the first through hiker hiked the entire thing in one go. Now, what they actually did is that they connected existing trails in a way that would give the trail hiker a sense of everything that is Israel, the national monuments, the different landscapes, the different parts of society. You climb mountains, you swim at the beach, you see everything that Israel has to offer. They actually did such a good job that National Geographic declared the Israel National Trail one of the top 20 long distance hikes in the world because of the way it reflects the places history and heritage. Now, we began hiking up north. Reason being, we, were, we started in late autumn, right before winter. So as the temperatures cool off, we make our way south to the warmer desert. If we've set out in springtime, we would do the opposite. We start from the warmer south, as, and, and as it became warmer, we'd go up to the cooler north. 
Setting out on the trail was a huge change in lifestyle for me. From being a city boy taking pictures, then sitting in front of a computer and editing them, all of a sudden, I'm outdoors, day after day, carrying on my back 30, 40, sometimes 50 pounds, hiking 10, 15, sometimes 20 miles a day. And aside from how the shoulders need to adjust to the weight and how your knees need to learn how to balance it, the big change is what happens in your head. Because all of a sudden, you see stars every single night. You start noticing lizards and insects and blossoming flowers. And little by little, you grow more and more connected to your surroundings. This picture was taken from the top of Mount Arbel, overlooking Israel's largest freshwater lake, the Kinneret, that's right. Have you ever noticed that it's called the Sea of Galilee, but it's definitely not a sea? The same as our other sea, the dead one, which is also a lake. Because we, we don't have as much as the US, right? We, we don't have much, so we kind of play it up a little bit. So we're overlooking the Sea of Galilee and the Golan Heights and the lower Galilee right here. And right before climbing uh, the Arbel, I started noticing something. So I'll say this. I'll actually ask before I do. Does anyone know what the chances are of a young, healthy man that's pretty much in shape to dislocate a hip without some severe trauma, without getting hit badly? Probably zero. So three different professionals have asked, said the exact same thing. Now, in a past life, I used to be a professional volleyball player. And I know my body pretty well. And after a week into the trail, I knew something was definitely wrong with my hip. Now, we are outdoors, heavy backpacks, away from any doctor, from any town that we know. And there was really not much to do aside from asking Rotem to help me get my hip fixed. I, I really felt it. I, I kind of knew the feeling. Temple. <laughs> so now you know why Lotem was essential for this trip. All right, so now we're really ready to set out. And the first story begins in the southern side of the Sea of Galilee in a little place called Kinneret, named after the Sea of Galilee. And it was actually an agricultural village that was founded in the beginning of the 20th century and was also home to some of the more prominent social Zionist figures that came to Israel. And in Kinneret, there's a very famous um, graveyard or cemetery that all these people are buried and the trail actually goes right by it so people can pay homage to those people. But out of all these characters, the best known one, can anyone read this? Rachel. Rachel, the poetess. 
the woman who wrote the most canonic song, poems about this place in Israel, about the Golan Heights, about the Sea of Galilee, the most beautiful poetry ever written in Hebrew. She's buried there, and a lot of trail hikers actually do take the time to go in and pay their respect. So we're there. Now keep in mind, winter, winter is coming, right? So the days are growing shorter and shorter. Now, I want to show where we are. This is the area where we are. Right here, this is where we're going to leave from. And the next day is going to be the longest day we've had on the trail up until that point. So we're leaving from the southern side of the Sea of Galilee. We have to, oh, it keeps skipping. Wait, OK. We have to cross this ridge and go all the way to the Tavor Mountain, this dome-shaped mountain, which is in a completely different part of the country. What we did know, though, is that once we reach this outlook right here, this was going to be the highest point of the day, meaning that from that point on, it's either going to be flat or downhill. And with that in mind, we start planning the next day. And I'm going to read to you what I wrote in the night before in my travel journal. The hardest thing to cope with, with, or the least familiar, is the physical fear of tomorrow. It's supposed to rain, which means we'll be hiking wet. It's a long, difficult day, longer than all previous days, but we can't postpone because it's going to rain for a few days. And the last thing came up when I called the trail angels in Kfar Kish, and the woman said that after rains like that, it's extremely hard to walk in the Galilean mud, and the trail becomes very problematic. So there's a long, difficult day with heavy packs, in the rain, with questionable hips, and in the mud. All of this is causing me real anxiety, especially because of the unknown, obviously. Worst case scenario, we cut short to Yavniel. Even worse, we'll get rescued. We probably won't die. <laughs> now, you can imagine that, that that little bit of cynicism at the end came because I was really concerned about how the next day was going to turn out. And because of that, we wake up before sunrise. We start walking. But by the time we reach the Jordan River, the sun rises and the rain comes back. And after a couple of days of rain, and it being rainy that same day, the trail is indeed very hard to walk. We can't really find the trail markings. We get stuck in the mud. We're not too sure how this day is going to turn out. We start doubting ourselves. But remember that I've said that after a couple of days on the trail, you really start feeling how you connect with nature. And we felt that Mother Nature was sending us a very clear message. It was going to be just fine. Keep walking. And if that wasn't enough, the double rainbow, I remind you the story of Noah's Ark, who was the messenger of good news? The dove. Right, so we actually got eight of them just to reassure us. But the woman we spoke to was not lying. If you look at the bottom of Rotem's shoes right here, there are two inches of thick 
Galilean mud that gets stuck to your shoes with every single step that you take. Now, as long as we were walking this part of the trail, there was really nothing we could do about it because had we gone on this dry bush right here, it was like building a, a mud hut on the bottom of your shoes. It was mud, dry bush, more mud. It would have just been worse. So we just power through the mud until finally we start climbing up. So now we have the uphill to be concerned about, but at least we're walking on rocks and we're out of the mud at this point. Now the good thing that happens when you climb uphill is that every time you look back, the scenery behind you opens up more and more. And then we look ahead and at some point we see this. This single pistachio tree is the outlook I was telling you about. So when you see the end, you power through. So with the heavy packs and the rain and the mud, we make a run for it. And when we get to the top, we get another call from Mother Nature. The clouds break open. The sun comes shining through. And a full rainbow appears down in the valley. We get a 15-minute break to enjoy this unbelievable landscape. The Sea of Galilee, the Golan Heights, the Lower Galilee right there, and right here, this is where the Lower Jordan River leaves the Sea of Galilee and starts winding down, making its way to our other non-sea, to the Dead Sea. Yes, please. Were you shooting with a panorama camera? No, I, this is actually a stitched photo from several photos. Yeah. Canon. It was uh, 5D Mark II. 5D. Yes. How many miles were you in the mud there? Uh, this was probably two miles, which took us a very, very long time to How get out of. It was 72 days, the whole thing. How many lenses did you have to take with you? Wow, this was, I think I had four lenses with me. And there was a bunch of gear. But I would say all the general questions, I'll de there will be plenty of time at the end, so I'll be happy. If you do have questions about what I'm showing you, please do ask. But I'd say the general ask questions, I will definitely take the time to answer them. So we're taking a 15-minute break here, right? We take out our sandwiches of tahini sauce, avocado, and onions, which is a meal worthy of kings under the circumstances. And we have our lunch. And then after 15 minutes, we see that the clouds gather back up, so we know it's time to leave. We pack our bags, and as soon as we start putting them on our backs, a bird call comes from the left of us. A flock of black storks come flying by right below that outlook where we were. Now, as a photographer, how often do I get to shoot birds from up top? Obviously, I mean camera shooting. From up top, right? So backpacks, back down, camera at hand, and I start taking photos. Every year, 500 million birds fly over Israeli sky twice a year, once making their way from Europe down to Africa, and another time making their way back to Europe, both times flying over Israeli sky. Israel actually has the second highest concentration of migrating birds in the world after what country? Canada. Think south of where we are. 
So think about this. Israel, the reason we have so many birds is that Israel is the land bridge between continents. So that would be Panama. Panama. The only country that has a higher concentration of migrating birds than Israel. So remember I said that the trail hikers, in the fall, we make our way south to the warmer desert. In the spring, we go up north to the cooler north. Well, all we're doing, we're just mimicking the bird migration, the natural bird migration that's been happening for hundreds of thousands of years that are doing the exact same thing. In the, in the summer, they go to Europe, where it's, where it's cooler. And then in the winter, they spend their winters in Africa. As the birds pass us, they catch a thermal current, disappear into the horizon. We know it's time to keep going. We still had two interesting encounters that day. The first one, Vitali and Anton. This Ukrainian duo came all the way from the Ukraines only to hike the Israel Trail, but they were so unprepared thinking, well, it's Israel. It's all desert, right? So they didn't have any rain gear, and when the rain started, we found them taking cover. Not only that, the sandals they were wearing got stuck in the mud, so they actually started walking barefoot because they just couldn't walk with their sandals. So a little bit after that, right by the Tavor Creek, a little river crab comes and stands right in the middle of the trail, somewhat of a trail guardian. I obviously took it as if it was posing for pictures. So after a five-minute photo shoot, we keep going, and finally we see the Tavor, the dome-shaped mountain we were going for. We decide we're not going to reach the Tavor that day. We're going to stay in Kfar Kish, a little village right before that. And as we enter Kfar Kish, we start looking for a campground we knew is there. And we wave down a car that passed by, and we ask the couple in the car where the campground is. They give us directions, and they keep going. And then we notice that 20 feet after, the car stops. They pull back, roll down the window, and look at us with great empathy in their eyes, saying, you look extremely tired. How about sleeping in a real bed tonight? Well, sure. So Noam and Osnat took us home, hosted us in their spare bedroom that wasn't being used that night. And we actually got to watch the sunset right over the Tavor from their backyard. Now, Noam and Usnat were lovely, lovely, hospitable people. But as we found out along the trail, this phenomenon of trail angels was definitely not unique to northern Israel. Trail angels is something else we copied from you guys, from the Appalachian Trail. These are people who live close to the trail, and they help out the trail hikers on their way. Now, in the US, they usually help out logistically. You can mail packages to them. They would pick you up or drop you off on the trail. Sometimes they would offer showers. But in Israel, trail angels took a bit of a step forward. And in Israel, trail angels actually host you in their house, in their own private homes, without expecting anything in return. And all you have to be is a trail hiker. Now, I really want to, in order to really understand how unique this phenomenon is, I want to tell you about one specific trail angel family. But before that, does anyone venture, care to venture a guess where the last three pictures were taken? 
Obviously, we're down south, right, in the desert. I'm showing you the Ramon crater again. Same crater we saw before. Reason I'm showing you the Ramon crater is that I want to tell you about a family that lives in Mitzpeh Ramon, the town on the northern rim of the Ramon crater. And Mitzpeh Ramon was actually founded as a work camp for the people who were paving the road south to Eilat in the 50s. And then in the late 50s was established as an actual town. And the trail passes by there. And we ended up staying a little longer than we had expected. Now, usually with trail angels, you're supposed to call them a day or two in advance, let them know that you're coming, ask for permission if you can come and stay. We had an hour. So we call up the Taberski family. We tell them, listen, we are here. We know it's kind of last moment, but can we still come and stay over for the night? We hear them debating on the other side of the line, and then they say, sure, come, but be quick. We have to leave. So we pack our, our bags, and we go over there. And then on the way, we pass through the spark. So as you saw, oh, wait. as you saw, this is a town in the middle of the desert. So this animal, which is called an ibex, a Nubian ibex, which is, by the way, as far north in the world as you can find them. So they would just venture into town to feed off the lawn and you know, these are the local kids that she's not, she doesn't understand. Why are you taking a picture? This happens every day. Uh, so we go to the Tobersky family, and as soon as we walk in, the wife takes us upstairs. These are your beds. Here's the shower. Feel at home. I go downstairs. I start talking to the husband. And in Israel, like in Israel, we have mutual friends, people that went to high school with me. And I immediately took a liking to this family because they really reminded me of my family. They said, come quick, we have to leave. Three hours later, we're still in the kitchen chatting. <laughs> now, the reason they had to leave is that this was Hanukkah, and they were going to go up north, celebrate the holiday with their family. But since they've already taken us in and accepted us as their family, they couldn't leave without letting us feel some of the holiday spirit. Here we go. And that was it. After that, they've left, leaving Rotem and myself alone in their house, <laughs> knowing fully well that this was going to be just fine. And that's the way it works. Some places along the trail even took it a step further, like this place, Sansana, in southern Mount Hebron, right on the verge of the Negev Desert. They allotted this B&B uh, just for trail hikers. This is the sole purpose of this house. And if you walk into their village and you let them know in advance, you're allowed to stay there, free of charge. And if you wake up early enough in the morning, then this is what awaits you from the porch. Now, as I've told you, many of the people we've met, many of the, of the trail angels we've met hosted us, and we knew in advance that we could approach them. But 
What we found out as we were hiking is that a lot of times when people just met us and they saw the big backpacks and they heard our stories and they learned about what we were doing, many people actually turned into trail angels without planning to be such in advance. These encounters, those demonstrations of hospitality and human kindness, for me, were the first major step in actually realizing what was the point behind my trip. Because I felt with each of these encounters how this virtual weight I was carrying on my shoulders, little by little, started lifting. And this next story begins with one specific, oh, it keeps skipping. Oh, here we go. Begins with one specific trail angel. This will stop in a second. And I'm taking you back to Mount Tavor. And we actually stayed on top of Mount Tavor. We reached the mountain that we saw before. And first thing in the morning, we go down to the village of Shibli, which was right below the mountain. Shibli is a Bedouin village up north in the Galilee. Bedouins, one of Israel's Muslim minorities. Most of them live in the south, but some of them actually do live in the Galilee. And we go down to this village and we look for someone to ask where the nearest grocery store is. We need to buy groceries, prepare breakfast, and head out. There's a very long day ahead of us. We walk back and forth. No one's up aside from this horse waiting by the window for its owner to feed it. Not very conducive to finding a grocery store. And then we finally meet someone that's up, Kultum. Kultum was sitting at the porch of her house, sorting out herbs. And we go up to her, we ask where the nearest grocery store is, and she says it's all the way on the other side of the village, a half hour walk away, which meant walking half an hour there, getting groceries, making breakfast, eating breakfast, walking half an hour back, that would have wasted the entire morning. We couldn't do that because there's a really long day ahead of us. So we decide we're gonna set out and we'll just figure it out along the trail. We go back to her to ask just to fill up our water bottles so we can start walking. She looks at us, measures us from head to toe, and says, absolutely not. Put down your backpacks, sit down with me on the porch, and she serves us 
the best breakfast we've had along the trail. Freshly baked pita from the village, sour cheese she'd made, pickled olive, fresh vegetables. Not only that, she sends us off to the road with enormous apples that kept us going all the way till lunchtime. So this was our first encounter of the day. And we didn't yet know at that point this was going to represent the entire day. Going in with zero expectations and encountering this very lovely hospitality. We had the next encounter was a little more surprising. So I remind you, we're up north in the Galilee in a forest when a camel sneaks up behind Rotem as she's putting on her backpack. As we keep walking away from Mount Tavor towards the city of Natsrat Ilit, Natsrat Ilit is a Jewish city, we open the map and we see that right across the road from it, there's a village, an Arab village. And on the map it says that there's a restaurant at the village. And it actually says that it's a typical Arab restaurant, meaning they have amazing hummus. And after two weeks of surviving on sandwiches of tahini sauce, avocado, and onions, or sometimes cucumbers, there's nothing we crave more than some proper hummus. So we walk into the village. The owner of the restaurant actually stands outside waiting for clients. And as soon as he starts talking to us, we stop him right there. That's what we're there for. We walk inside, we put our backpacks down, and as soon as we sit down, he comes up to us and strikes a conversation. So the conversation actually started when we heard him argue in the kitchen with his business partner. They argue for a couple of minutes, and then he comes up to us, and he says, is it true that you're going to be hiking from here all the way to Eilat, to Israel's southern border? We say, yeah. And then he asks us the most frequently asked question on the trail. Then where do you charge your phones? <laughs> so, he comes up, he sits with us. We were practically on our own in the restaurant. And we start talking to each other. And then he tells us that actually a lot of trail hikers go through his restaurant, sit down there to eat. But the more we talk, we realize he knows nothing about the trail. He doesn't really understand the concept of it. He doesn't really understand what all these people are doing. So in spite of all of them stopping there, there's this disconnect. Might be cultural, might be a language barrier, but still there's this gap there. And we sat there for about an hour. 
just talking. We told him about ourselves, where we're from, what we're doing. He told us about the village, about the horses that he raises, the olive picking. And also we told him about the trail. And we felt that after this hour we were there, we were actually able to bridge this gap and in a small way actually made a new friend. So what started at breakfast went on in lunchtime and then right before leaving, being very, very full, we also had to argue in order to have him let us pay for, for our meal. The last place we had to cross that day was another Arab village in the name of Mashhad. Both the guidebook and the maps say the same thing. The scenery is not that great. It's not very interesting. A lot of times the trail markings would be erased. Nothing much to look for there. Go in, get out the other side, keep walking. A friend of mine that actually has done the trail and finished a month before we did said the same thing. And he also added that as he was walking past there, he felt a little uncomfortable. With that in mind, we start walking. Here and there, some street vendors nod at us, say hello. Some first graders just learn in school how to say shalom. So they run after us and yell shalom, shalom. And then as we walk through the village, all of a sudden, Rotem remembers that she needs a notepad. When you hike, you have a lot of time to think. Every once in a while, there's a thought that's actually worth saving. And if you don't write it down immediately, it's gone. So as we walk through the windy alleys of the village, we stumble upon this stationary shop. We walk inside. The owner was actually sitting with his back to the door, TV on, lights off, not noticing anyone that comes in. We walk inside. We say hello. He turns to us, puts on the biggest grin you can imagine, as if we were the people he was waiting for the entire day. He orders us to put our backpacks down and sit down and have coffee with him. Muafak is a self-proclaimed messenger of light and peace in the world. He used to be a school teacher, and he quit teaching when he felt that the age gap between him and the students was too big. So he, he uh, quit teaching, but he opened the stationery shop so he can still see the students. And he always keeps close at hand this visitor's book so the nice people that he meets along the way can leave kind notes to him. All of these encounters with the trail angels, with the people that helped us along the way, for me, as I've mentioned, were the first major step in finding this connection that I was looking for. Now, as we're experiencing this, as we're experiencing these encounters, had you been reading the news in that exact same time, you would have been reading something completely different. A new wave of terror begins in Jerusalem. People were getting run over every other day. An Israeli singer releases a song about a young Palestinian only looking to execute his next terrorist attack, getting a lot of criticism on the, on, on the one hand, a lot of support on the other hand, steering a major uproar. A terrible massacre takes place in a Jerusalem synagogue. And a Druze policeman, Druze, one of Israel's non-Jewish minorities, a Jewish policeman walks inside the synagogue, defends the people there with his own body, gets fatally wounded, dies of his wounds a week later. And the day after he dies, we first hear about the nationality law that came into play not long ago, again. 
that states that only Jews have the right of self-determination in the land of Israel. Had I been back home, only feeding off of the media, only reading the news, this would have been my only reality. This was exactly the kind of thing that I ran away from. But when we were on the ground, meeting the people, conversing with them, and actually interacting without the median on the way, then our experience was completely different. And as we've witnessed in the galley, you can actually see for yourselves how coexistence may work. When we kept walking on the trail, we managed to see some of the complexity of the Israeli-Palestinian or the Jewish-Arab story. This is southern Mount Hebron, and this right here is the separation fence or the barrier. Some places it's a wall, some places it's a fence, and the trail goes right by it. And as we walk by it, all of a sudden we look to the other side, and this side is Palestinian territory, and we look to the other side and we see something very peculiar. Two uh, pickups stop right on the other side, 15 guys come climbing off of them, everyone carrying their bags and their, and their, uh, their, bags and their backpacks, and they all stand there, look towards the fence, look, look towards Israel, and just stand there and wait, and we don't understand what's happening. There's a fence right there. And then we get the answer. We keep walking, and then this, oh, this car stops right in front of us, and three guys come running out of it. They run towards the fence, climb over it, and go to the other side. And then we realize these are day laborers. They cross in the afternoon. They spend the night in Israel. They work the next day. And then the next afternoon, they would go back home. And as we see this scene unfold in front of our eyes, we keep walking and we start discussing if this separation fence is supposed to separate Israel and Palestine, but day laborers can cross it at will, then what's the real point behind it? Now, this story, the Israeli-Palestinian or Jewish-Arab story, is just a fraction of the history that this land holds. This is just very recent history. But as you walk on the trail, you actually start noticing the thousands of years of history that the land holds for us. And this is where these clay fragments come into play. Because these places can be found practically in any archaeological site in Israel or near it. So these are, I have an archaeologist friend that dated some of them to be 1,500 years old and some of them about 1,000 years old. Right? So anywhere else in the world, this is a huge attraction. In Israel, there's so much of this. History is so much ingrained into the land that we don't even pay attention to these. People don't even bother picking them up. So as we kept realizing this, I felt that there was a lesson that I could learn from history. And I think I started forming it when we were here. This is the Amud Creek, very, very close to Safed in the Galilee. And as you cross the Amud Creek, you cross the whole thing in about eight hours. And throughout these eight hours, you cross 26 old windmills and flower, I'm sorry, flour mills that used to be in operation there. Now, they used to be in operation for the past 500 years or so. 
which means that in eight hours, you're actually walking through 500 years of history, 500 years of change that this place has gone through. And if 500 years of change is a lot, what about these caves in the Carmel? These caves are actually a UNESCO site. This is most likely when people, where people first started cultivating wheat. This is where people first started cultivating animals. This is where the oldest woman's grave was found. And this is the only place in the world where it's been proven that Neanderthals and Homo sapiens lived in the same place at the same period. So this is a place that has been inhabited for the past 500,000 years. So 500,000 years of change, of human evolution. And but Israel is not only about the changes it's gone through. It's also about how the past intertwines with the present. For example, this house in Bet Hanania, a village very close to Caesarea, that was built literally 20 feet away from a 2,000-year-old water aqueduct. Right? So the Romans built this water aqueduct to run water from Mount Carmel for four miles all the way to Caesarea, which was one of the most important cities of the time. And they were so far advanced that for these four miles, they actually kept a steady incline of 16 inches per mile, making sure that water keeps flowing throughout the entire way. Now, if you look closely on one of the parts of the aqueduct, there's this inscription left there by the 10th Roman legion that was stationed there. And just imagine what those soldiers had in mind, belonging to the most powerful empire of the time, controlling almost the entire Mediterranean, using the most advanced technology of arches and digging tunnels and running water and using cement. Could they even imagine that the glorious Roman empire that they belonged to would one day just disappear off the map? would be eaten up by another empire, that the changes they would go through would be so extreme. Eventually, I think that this lesson that I'm trying to form here was really formulated here. We're looking at the Hadassah Ein Karim Hospital right outside of Jerusalem, at the edge of Jerusalem. And if you look at its surroundings, it looks pretty barren. There's just some rocks and trees, and uh, these are the, the very far out neighborhoods of Jerusalem. Not a lot of signs of human inhabitants, but this is actually false. This used to be one of the most inhabited places in Israel in ancient times, reason being water. About a quarter mile west of there is one of Israel's most layered and most interesting archaeological sites, the Sataf. The Sataf has been inhabited for the past 6,000 years. Every people, every nation that came and took over Jerusalem actually left its mark right here, left another layer of history on this place, which means that the more you dig down, the more you find remnants of the past. About 4,000 uh, 4, years ago, the people that lived here started using agricultural terraces. Do you know what the point is behind agricultural terraces? What do they actually do? You level out, 
Right. What about the water? So the water is going to run down the hill. That's exactly it. What you're practically doing is creating a huge sponge. So exactly. So that's instead of irrigation. That's right. So the only thing you need is just rainwater. And then first of all, it doesn't. Um, the soil doesn't drift exactly. It doesn't go to the go with the water. And aside from that, you're creating this huge sponge that holds the water for much much longer. Now the interesting thing is that on the other side of the world, in China, the same technology was invented at the exact same time. Way before international merchant routes, way before globalization, the same technology was invented on both sides of the planet. Now, as we were here looking at this remarkable view, I started thinking about all the things I've just told you and what I could take from them. So if we look at the Amud Creek and the Mount Carmel caves and how things constantly change and nothing is ever constant aside from change. And if we look at Caesarea and we look at the, and we think about those Roman soldiers and how one day you could be at the peak of your glory and then the next day you could just no longer be. Or we, if we look at the Sataf and we think how and we realize how we are not history itself, as sometimes we like to think. We're just the current layer of history. I realize that what I could take from all this is A, a sense of proportion, and B, some modesty. And then taking a wider look at things and being able to see how the world doesn't revolve around me. I'm just this little cog in this huge world, but that does allow me to take on the perspective and looking at the good things that I did have and start to stay away from the things that I didn't like. Now, as we were walking back in time, I want to take you millions of years back. And I think there is no place better than crater country in Israel. Now, here's a trick question. How many craters does Israel have? So the trick is right here, because I'm showing you three craters, right? So people usually know the small crater, the big crater, and the Ramon crater. But Israel actually has five craters. There are two smaller craters on the west side of the Ramon crater. And why do I even bother telling you about the Israeli craters? Reason is that they are unique in the world. The world has thousands of craters. Most of them created by meteorites or ice ages or different ge geological phenomenons. But the craters we have in Israel are erosion craters, which is a specific geological phenomenon that happens over hundreds of millions of years. And there are only eight of them in the entire world. Five in Israel, two in the Sinai Peninsula, and one in Virginia. But they were mainly studied in Israel, which is why the Hebrew word for crater, the word machtesh, became an official geological term for this kind of crater, for the erosion crater. So if you ever, in your travels, stumble upon a Japanese geologist and you say machtesh, he knows exactly what you're talking about. You're talking about our craters, the type you find in Israel. Now, throughout the trail, you cross the three big craters in one week. First one being the small crater. And I want to share with you our introduction 
with the small crater. So before I tell you what Rotem meant by that, let me take you inside the crater. And the first thing that you see are the colors. So the sand, excuse me, the sand absorbs the minerals and they give out these amazing radiant colors. Now, what did Rotem mean? We've set out from the north. So we had a lot of kibbutzim and moshavim, gas stations, just places to fill up water and get groceries, let alone in central Israel. It's even easier. But once you get to the desert, and specifically once you get to the crater area, that's when the trail completely changes. And what dictates the walk is water. And you walk from one point of water to the next. Now, that means that you have to ration water. And at some places, it actually means you have to take care of it in advance. So we actually made a stop on the way and drove all the way down south to bury water in some campgrounds so we know where we could dig them out and we know that we have water expecting us. Now, this day of crossing the small crater is not very difficult. It's pretty long, but not very difficult. It's flat, and you walk down into this huge hole in the ground. But the end of the day, you have to climb out of this big hole in the ground. And it's a very steep 45-minute climb. But for those who are willing to make this climb out, it's definitely worth it. <coughs> So you saw that we met another group earlier that day. We, we finished the hike together. We, looked, we spent some time in this lookout. And then we walked half an hour to the nearest campground where we pitched our tents and started making dinner and just enjoying a relaxing time in the evening after a very long day. But as the sun set and the moon rose, I noticed that this was a full moon. And as a photographer, I couldn't just stay and hang out with the rest. So camera in hand, tripod in my other hand, I walk back to the Outlook half an hour in the dark to take this picture. Now, the reason you can only take this picture when it's a full moon out is these background lights coming from the mountains of Jordan. Because at night, every little light becomes 10 times as powerful. And it's only when you have another light illuminating the inside of the crater 
it actually balances out the background lights, and that's the only time you can really take this photo. Now, as I've told you, this was this small crater. Two days later comes the most difficult day on the trail, crossing the large crater. Because it's the most difficult day, 4 a.m., we're already up, stepping outside of the tent, start getting ready. But as we do, we look to the sky and we see that there's a desert storm coming towards us. At that point, we know that when Mother Nature says something, we listen. So we decide we're not going to tempt it. We're going to wait it out for the day and just go over to the nearby town, spend the day there, come back the next morning, and then try walking, that, uh, try walking this part of the trail. But the same as every day, we still have to fold our tents, we have to pack our backpacks. And as you could see, Rotem is going to come out of the tent probably five, ten minutes after I did. She's going to be ready five or ten minutes before I am, <laughs> which is the reason we had a pact. She cannot put on her backpack before I put on my backpack, so she stops getting annoyed that she has to wait all the time. As you can see, Rotem is packed and gone. And I'm, I'm just a very, very thorough packer. So we walk out to the road, and we start hitchhiking to the nearby town. And as we do, I'm looking at this video you've just seen. And all of a sudden, I notice my camera stopped working. I start fiddling with it to see if I can make it work. Nothing works. The camera is not working anymore. But as I realize this, you'll see this double-decker, uh, not double-decker, um, um, uh, Oh man, the truck that has two parts to it is called. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, he pulls up just to pick us up, so I don't want to keep him waiting. So obviously I put my camera back in my pouch, and I lean down to pick up my backpack so we can go in his truck, and as I pull up the, from the back strap, I pull it up, and then ta, the, the, um, it snaps, it just breaks. The camera, the backpack strap, Breaks. So now we're sitting in his truck. You can see Waltham's face. It says everything. The camera just stopped working. The backpack just broke. First of all, this is definitely not the day we, we should have hiked the most difficult day on the trail. This one-hour ride to the nearby town becomes a six-hour ride all the way to Tel Aviv. We get to Tel Aviv, I put my camera in repair, I go back home, I take a different backpack, take a different camera, we manage to find a ride back to the desert that same night, and the next morning, according to plan, we set out to cross the most difficult day on the trail. And this is the first thing you see. You start climbing from the desert floor on the side of the crater, and as the sun rises, you see this kind of post-apocalyptic Mad Max kind of scene, this, plant in the middle of the desert, but as the, day as the day progresses and the sun goes higher up in the sky, we realize it's actually a great day. The weather is amazing, we're making good headway, and we're really enjoying the hike. But there is a reason that this is considered the most difficult day on the trail. So this is how you cross the big crater. From the desert floor, you climb up to the rim of the crater, and then you walk diagonally on very hard rock, one leg up, one leg down, and that's how you cross it the whole day. But I'm sure that you know that the harder you work for something, 
the greater the reward it gives you. And with every drop of sweat that I shed, with every meter or with every uh, um, uh, mile that we gain, I feel how I get more and more connected to this land in a very literal sense, in a very direct sense, getting more and more connected to this trail. And by the time we reach this outlook, overlooking the entire big crater, I even have a hint of pride sneak into me, thinking that this, in a small way, is also mine. When we finish admiring this view, we start climbing back down to the desert floor through this margin-looking landscape shaped by millions of years of rains and winds and tectonic movements, climbing from rock to rock, climbing down ladders. You can see Rotem right here. And then by the end of the day, when we do reach the desert floor, we feel we are no longer afraid of the desert, which is great because the last part of the trail is the Eilat mountain range. The most southern range in Israel, right here, also forms the last week of the trail. And the first amazing panorama that you see when you enter this area is this, the Timna Valley. These colorful mountains that just seem to have sprung out from, from the earth. And as soon as we see this, the picky photographer that I am, I make Quotem walk for another half hour till we make a stop for a lunch break because that was the only place where I could take pictures from. So we sit here and we admire this view and we start looking back on the trail we've walked. And we start thinking about everything we've gone through. And we're very thankful that we walked like the birds, north to south, because the desert, with its solitude and vastness and silence, leaves you a lot of time to contemplate and start thinking about what you've gone through. And the next day, as we go into the Timna Valley and climb the Timna Mountain and look back on the Timna Hills that we just came from, we're reminded of that poem that the trail angel gave Rotem. Remember there was a blinking sign? Remember this guy? He gave Rotem a poem about the desert by Israel Hevroni, an Israeli poet. Going out to the desert is going out of your settled, organized, well-formed self to the great confusions, the chaos, the floods, the sandstorms. And there, between heaven and earth, to crash between rocks, to be sent off from cliffs, to fall apart limb by limb, and on the way back home, to gather all the crumbs of desolation to one little stone, precious, unique. We have three more days in this unbelievable view. But then I realize we have three more days in this amazing view, which means in three more days, we're going to finish the trail. In three more days, I'm going back home to deal with everything I ran away from, to actually going back to real life. And the day before we finished the trail, this thought was a little much for me. And I'll read to you what I felt, which is what I recounted in my travel journal that night. We went on to Netafim Creek, 
an enchanting place that I simply couldn't focus on. An existential bummer came upon me, which also ruined it for Rotem, which brought me down even more. At some point, I told Rotem to keep going, and I simply sat and cried my heart out. I cried out all the doubts and misery. I experienced a sequence of questions and answers and insights in record time. After 10 minutes of beating myself, I realized that I needed to summon a Vipassana retreat as soon as possible, to release whatever is stuck, to make myself happier, to let go of the terrible and the repulsive, and bring forth the good and the positive. When I calmed down, I've set out a new man. Rotem waited for me up the creek on a cliff overlooking the trail, and we watched the rock hyrexes run down to eat after hiding between the rocks all day. The trip was fun once again. So before, it was Hanukkah. Now it's the New Year's, which is the perfect time for a New Year's resolution. And mine was to take a Vipassana retreat. Vipassana, for those of you who are not familiar with it, is a form of meditation which is very, very common in Israel. And for years, I've been wanting to take it and kept postponing it. And that year, after the trail, I did go ahead and, take, and took the retreat. And it made a huge impact in my life. I moved out of Tel Aviv. I moved to a little village that's green and quiet, close to family and friends that I love and hold dear. And really, the next year was a complete change in life. And that's what I started realizing when we got here to the last mountain we had to climb on the trail, I realized that this trail was actually a closure. It was an end of a period and the beginning of a new one. Because that connection that I was looking for, I found it. I found it on the trail. And at that point, I was even somewhat excited to go back home and take all of this, take everything I've experienced and take it back to real life. So if we really sat down and spoke, I could actually draw a direct line between the trail experience and my current life right now. This is my wife and my now 10, 10 months old baby. And this, as far as I'm concerned, really started in the trail. So with that happy thought in mind, I'm going to take you back to the last mountain we had to climb on the trail. Keeps doing this. All right. Yes. I'm <laughs> 
So what do you think? Hotel or all the way south? All the way south. So the reason the trail actually changed is this new border fence between Israel and Egypt, Israel and Sinai. And wherever there's a border fence, there's, an ar there's the army. So as we walk down the mountain, all of a sudden we stumble upon an army post. Now calling it an army post is a bit of an exaggeration. Those were three soldiers sitting there bored out of their minds. And the last thing that expected were to see two hikers coming down from the mountain towards them. So by the time they found their gear, ran up to us, climbed up the wrong hill to get us, we were already right there standing right next to them. And they called their commander and asked him, what do we do with these clowns? And he says, I don't care, just get them out of here. So they had to walk us down this little road that leads to the main road of Eilat, down here. They could have not been more excited to get out of there, even if it were for just 15 minutes. So they were very excited that they were getting out of there for a little bit. And they were excited for us because we were almost at the end of the trail. So they've decided that this little road they were walking us on, that was the end of the trail. And we didn't want to ruin the excitement for them, so we went along with it. All right. So we're almost done, but there's one thing I still owe you, because I said I've set out on the trail for two reasons. One was to find this connection that I did find on the trail. But the other one was that I was professionally very frustrated. And perhaps the biggest gift I've received from this trail is what you see in front of you right now. For the past three and a half years, this has been my main project that I deal with. So at first, I started speaking about this. I come to the US several times a year, I speak about this in Israel, and I published articles about this. The pictures have been used in many, many media outlets. Last year, I've published the first ever photo book about the journey on the Israel Trail, and my first ever photo book. I started guiding people on the trail. I started leading photography tours on the trail. All that to say, the trail has allowed me to do what I really wanted to do as a photographer. And for that, I'm thankful every single morning. So with that thought in mind, I'm taking you on, this, on the last couple of steps to finish the trail. What do you think? 300 steps to the 
שאפשר להגיע בלי דרכון? מעולה. באנו לגעת בגדר וללכת. Uh, so I'll say this, the day we've set out on the trail, we said that no matter what time we reach Eilat, we are going to go and swim in the Red Sea. So even though it was kind of evening and was getting cold, this was our celebratory swim that we did not miss. Um, what I have here for you. Um, so the book, if you want to have a look at it, it's still in Hebrew. As Rabbi Shmuley mentioned, it's being... Uh, translated into English right now would be ready for next year. Uh, this is the guidebook in, in English if you want to browse through it, if you want to ask questions. I even brought the trail maps to look through. And all of these are for your browsing, and please have a look at them. And those pictures I have here are giveaways for you. Please pick one and remember me fondly. And if uh, you want anything more, you can actually take uh, my card. And either you know, call me up in the middle of the night and hang up, or just ask me questions about the trail. Um, so those are for you to take. Do you have any questions? Please. What happened to Rotem once you got back? What happened to Rotem? So before I tell you what happened to Rotem, I'll give you a broader answer. So as we were hiking the trail, we met three different types of people. One were kids right out of high school before their military service or right after their military service just doing the trail for fun. That was a major chunk of the people we've met. We've met people from abroad that came or, you know, just weekend hikers, people who are doing that just for leisure and this was their thing. And we met people in their late 30s, early 40s that were all in a junction in life. And that was the case for me, and that was the case for Rotem as well. So before leaving from the trail, she wasn't sure where we, she wanted to live. She wasn't happy with her job. She wasn't sure about what career path she wants to take in the future. She had a lot of questions. And at the end of the trail, she knew exactly where she wanted to live. She went back to school for a job she really liked. And during the trail, she got an idea, which she fulfilled two years later, of taking people on a journey of three weeks on the Golan Heights, where every night she brings in some kind of activity, be it yoga or be it um, some kind of a lecture. And so you hike through the day, and then in the evening you have an activity. So it's also a learning process, but you're doing it outdoors. And this is an idea she came up with during the trail. Two years later, she's been doing, she has started doing it, and she has been doing it every year. This year, for the first time, she did the same thing in India. So for Rotem, it was a big turn in life, making her realize what she wanted to do. As I've said, a lot of time for thinking on the trail. 
Any other questions? How did we charge our phones? So northern Israel, central Israel, not a big problem. Because either you stay with trail angels or during the day you have places where you can charge. The desert was an issue. So when we got to the desert, you turn on the phone in the morning. You text your mom, we're here. We're fine. We're walking there. You turn it off. Turn it back on at night. We're here. We're alive. Talk to you in the morning. And that's it. And so the most we had to go through without charging the phone is about five days. So it lasted for that. Yes, please. Where did you end up living in Israel? What part of the country? I ended up living um, about 10 minutes away from the Ben Gurion airport. There's a lot of little moshavim in the area, little villages. And I ended up being my sister's neighbor and my best friend's neighbor on the other side. And I've lived there for, for a couple of years. And that was a huge change from Tel Aviv. Please. Were, were the soldiers escorting you down? Was that an area you weren't supposed to be in? In theory, we weren't supposed to be. It, it wasn't closed to the public, but they did divert the trail so you wouldn't go past there because of the new border fence. So in reality, we weren't supposed to be there. But it wasn't a big deal. I mean, not, it, it's, it's not like they were alarmed. Or did the fence cut off to where the trail used to go? No, 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 no. The fence is right on the border. But you know, you have to, they try to keep a certain parameter from the fence so they can have their Jeeps running through there and you know, just not have people bothering them. Yes? So all of the above, right. So I'm, I'm still a photographer, mainly. More and more I started guiding uh, in recent years. I started guiding hikes. Now I guide more of a, of a general Israel tour guiding. And next year, this is something that I'm going to be doing, not full time, but it's going to take up at least half of my time, tour guiding, proper tour guiding. I did, I did the whole thing not consecutively. So I did like the different portions just different times throughout, uh, yeah, throughout my hiking days. Yes, please. So you, you met your wife after you did this? Yes. Yes, I did. She, so I, I did say that if we spoke for a couple of minutes, I can draw a direct line from the trail to meeting my wife. I'll actually, I'll really shorten it up for you. So the trail got me to go to a Vipassana retreat. The Vipassana retreat actually made me able to be in a committed relationship. I had two committed relationships before meeting my wife, practicing being in a relationship. And then three years after, when I met her, I was ready to actually be in a long-term committed relationship. So that's the short version. Yeah, any other questions? I'm not going anywhere. I'm still here. Please feel free to come browse. Take a picture. Um, I'm sorry, take a, uh, a print uh, to keep with you. And thanks again for coming. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. 
To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybaitmadrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.